Life is complex. Join us for the simple gifts of wisdom, love, and delight in the written word. Plato's Republic, Book 2 When I said this, I thought I had done with the discussion. But it turned out to have been only a prelude. Glaucon showed his characteristic courage on this occasion, too, and refused to accept Thrasymachus's abandonment of the argument. Socrates, he said, do you want to seem to have persuaded us that it is better in every way to be just than unjust? Or do you want truly to convince us of this? I want truly to convince you, I said, if I can. Well, then, you certainly aren't doing what you want. Tell me, do you think there is a kind of good we welcome, not because we desire what comes from it, but because we welcome it for its own sake? Joy, for example, and all the harmless pleasures that have no results beyond the joy of having them. Certainly I think there are such things. And is there a kind of good we like for its own sake, and also for the sake of what comes from it? Knowing, for example, and seeing, and being healthy. We welcome such things, I suppose, on both counts. Yes. And do you also see a third kind of good, such as physical training, medical treatment when sick, medicine itself, and other ways of making money? We'd say that these are onerous, but beneficial to us, and we wouldn't choose them for their own sakes, but for the sake of the rewards and other things that come from them. There is also this third kind, but what of it? Where do you put justice? I myself put it among the finest goods, as something to be valued by anyone who is going to be blessed with happiness, both because of itself and because of what comes from it. That isn't most people's opinion. They'd say that justice belongs to the onerous kind, and is to be practiced for the sake of the rewards and popularity that comes from a reputation for justice, but is to be avoided because of itself as something burdensome. I know that's the general opinion. Thrasymachus faulted justice on these grounds a moment ago and praised injustice, but it seems that I'm a slow learner. Come then, and listen to me as well, and see whether you still have that problem, for I think that Thrasymachus gave up before he had to, charmed by you as if he were a snake, but I'm not yet satisfied by the argument on either side. I want to know what justice and injustice are, and what power each itself has when it's by itself in the soul. I want to leave out of account their rewards and what comes from each of them. So, if you agree, I'll renew the argument of Thrasymachus. First, I'll state what kind of thing people consider justice to be, and what its origins are. Second, I'll argue that all who practice it do so unwillingly, as something necessary, not as something good. Third, I'll argue that they have good reason to act as they do, for the life of an unjust person is they say, much better than that of a just one. It isn't, Socrates, that I believe any of that myself. I'm perplexed, indeed, and my ears are deafened, listening to Thrasymachus and countless others. But I've yet to hear anyone defend justice in the way I want, proving that it is better than injustice. I want to hear it praised by itself, and I think that I'm most likely to hear this from you. Therefore, I'm going to speak at length in praise of the unjust life. And in doing so, I'll show you the way I want to hear you praising justice and denouncing injustice. But see whether you want me to do that or not. I want that most of all. Indeed, what subject could someone with any understanding enjoy discussing more often? Excellent. 
Then let's discuss the first subject I mentioned, what justice is and what its origins are. They say that to do injustice is naturally good, and to suffer injustice bad, but that the badness of suffering it so far exceeds the goodness of doing it that those who have done and suffered injustice and tasted both, but who lack the power to do it and avoid suffering it, decide that it is profitable to come to an agreement with each other, neither to do injustice nor to suffer it. As a result, they begin to make laws and covenants, and what the law commands they call lawful and just. This, they say, is the origin and essence of justice. It is intermediate between the best and the worst. The best is to do injustice without paying the penalty. The worst is to suffer it without being able to take revenge. Justice is a mean between these two extremes. People value it not as a good, but because they are too weak to do injustice with impunity. Someone who has the power to do this, however, and is a true man, wouldn't make an agreement with anyone not to do injustice in order not to suffer it. For him, that would be madness. This is the nature of justice, according to the argument, Socrates, and these are its natural origins. We can see most clearly that those who practice justice do it unwillingly, and because they lack the power to do injustice, if, in our thoughts, we grant to a just and an unjust person the freedom to do whatever they like. We can then follow both of them and see where their desires would lead, and we'll catch the just person red-handed traveling the same road as the unjust. The reason for this is the desire to outdo others and get more and more. This is what anyone's nature naturally pursues as good, but nature is forced by law into the perversion of treating fairness with respect. The freedom I mentioned would be most easily realized if both people had the power they say the ancestor of Gyges of Lydia possessed. The story goes that he was a shepherd in the service of the ruler of Lydia. There was a violent thunderstorm, and an earthquake broke open the ground and created a chasm at the place where he was tending his sheep. Seeing this, he was filled with amazement and went down into it. And there, in addition to many other wonders of which we are told, he saw a hollow bronze horse. There were window-like openings in it, and peeping in, he saw a corpse, which seemed to be of more than human size, wearing nothing but a gold ring on its finger. He took the ring and came out of the chasm. He wore the ring at the usual monthly meeting that reported to the king on the state of the flocks. And as he was sitting among the others, he happened to turn the setting of the ring towards himself to the inside of his hand. When he did this, he became invisible to those sitting near him, and they went on talking as if he had gone. He wondered at this, and, fingering the ring, he turned the setting outward again and became visible. So he experimented with the ring to test whether it indeed had this power. And it did. If he turned the setting inward, he became invisible. If he turned it outward, he became visible again. When he realized this, he at once arranged to become one of the messengers sent to report to the king. And when he arrived there, he seduced the king's wife, attacked the king with her help, killed him, and took over the kingdom. Let's suppose, then, that there were two such rings, one worn by a just and the other by an unjust person. Now, 
No one, it seems, would be so incorruptible that he would stay on the path of justice or stay away from other people's property when he could take whatever he wanted from the marketplace with impunity, go into people's houses and have sex with anyone he wished, kill or release from prison anyone he wished, and do all the other things that would make him like a god among humans. Rather, his actions would be in no way different from those of an unjust person, and both would follow the same path. This, some would say, is a great proof that one is never just willingly, but only when compelled to be. No one believes justice to be a good when it is kept private, since, wherever either person thinks he can do injustice with impunity, he does it. Indeed, every man believes that injustice is far more profitable to himself than justice. And any exponent of this argument will say he's right. For someone who didn't want to do injustice, given this sort of opportunity, and who didn't touch other people's property, would be thought wretched and stupid by everyone aware of the situation. Though, of course, they'd praise him in public, deceiving each other for fear of suffering injustice. So much for my second topic. As for the choice between the lives we're discussing, we'll be able to make a correct judgment about that only if we separate the most just and the most unjust. Otherwise, we won't be able to do it. Here's the separation I have in mind. We'll subtract nothing from the injustice of an unjust person, and nothing from the justice of a just one. But we'll take each to be complete in his own way of life. First, therefore, we must suppose that an unjust person will act as clever craftsmen do. A first-rate captain, or doctor, for example, knows the difference between what his craft can and can't do. He attempts the first, but lets the second go by, and if he happens to slip, he can put things right. In the same way, an unjust person's successful attempts at injustice must remain undetected, if he is to be fully unjust. Anyone who is caught should be thought inept, for the extreme of injustice is to be believed to be just without being just. And our completely unjust person must be given complete injustice. Nothing may be subtracted from it. We must allow that while doing the greatest injustice, he has nonetheless provided himself with the greatest reputation for justice. If he happens to make a slip, he must be able to put it right. If any of his unjust activities should be discovered, he must be able to speak persuasively, or to use force. And if force is needed, he must have the help of courage and strength, and of the substantial wealth and friends with which he has provided himself. Having hypothesized such a person, let's now, in our argument, put beside him a just man, who is simple and noble, and who, as Aeschylus says, doesn't want to be believed to be good, but to be so we must take away his reputation, for a reputation for justice would bring him honor and rewards, so that it wouldn't be clear whether he is just for the sake of justice itself or for the sake of those honors and rewards. We must strip him of everything except justice and make his situation the opposite of an unjust person's. Though he does know injustice, he must have the greatest reputation for it, so that his justice may be tested full strength, and not diluted by wrongdoing and what comes from it. Let him stay like that, unchanged until he dies, just, but all his life believed to be unjust. 
In this way, both will reach the extremes, the one of justice and the other of injustice, and we'll be able to judge which of them is happier. Whew, Glaucon, I said. How vigorously you've scoured each of the men for our competition, just as you would a pair of statues for an art competition. I do the best I can, he replied. Since the two are as I've described, in any case, it shouldn't be difficult to complete the account of the kind of life that awaits each of them, but it must be done. And if what I say sounds crude, Socrates, remember that it isn't I who speak, but those who praise injustice at the expense of justice. They'll say that a just person in such circumstances will be whipped, stretched on a rack, chained, blinded with fire, and, at the end, when he has suffered every kind of evil, he'll be impaled, and will realize then that one shouldn't want to be just, but to be believed to be just. Indeed, Aeschylus's words are far more correctly applied to unjust people than to just ones. For the supporters of injustice will say that a really unjust person, having a way of life based on the truth about things and not living in accordance with opinion, doesn't want simply to be believed to be unjust, but actually to be so. Harvesting a deep furrow in his mind where wise counsels propagate, he rules his city because of his reputation for justice. He marries into any family he wishes. He gives his children in marriage to anyone he wishes. He has contracts and partnerships with anyone he wants. And besides benefiting himself in all these ways, he profits because he has no scruples about doing injustice. In any contest, public or private, he's the winner and outdoes his enemies. And by outdoing them, he becomes wealthy, benefiting his friends and harming his enemies. He makes adequate sacrifices to the gods and sets up magnificent offerings to them. He takes better care of the gods, therefore, and indeed of the human beings he's fond of, than a just person does. Hence, it's likely that the gods, in turn, will take better care of him than of a just person. That's what they say, Socrates, that gods and humans provide a better life for unjust people than for just ones. When Glaucon had said this, I had it in mind to respond, but his brother, Adamantus, intervened. You surely don't think the position has been adequately stated. Why not? I said. The most important thing to say hasn't been said yet. Well, then, I replied, a man's brother must stand by him, as the saying goes. If Glaucon has omitted anything, you must help him. Yet what he has said is enough to throw me to the canvas and make me unable to come to the aid of justice. Tis the gift to be simple. Tis the gift to be free. Tis the gift to come down where we ought to be. And when we find ourselves in the place just right, t'will be in the valley of love and delight. When true simplicity is gained, to bow and to bend, we will not be ashamed. To turn, turn, will be our delight, till by turning, turning, we come round right.